I'm Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the VBC on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. Welcome to the VBC's Lioness, The Origin Story. This is a special podcast dedicated to telling the history of Lioness vets from their point of view. Over the course of this series, we'll cover everything from Team Lioness to female engagement teams and the cultural support teams. Our goal is to shed light on this unexplored history. Joining me again is filmmaker and writer Daria Summers. In 2008, Daria Summers, along with her filmmaking colleague Meg McClagan, released Lioness, a documentary that revealed the history of a group of women support soldiers who went to Iraq in 2003 as mechanics, clerks, and engineers, but ended up serving as the original Lioness soldiers. Although Lioness's mission was to defuse tensions with Iraqi women and children, they fought in some of the bloodiest battles of the Iraq War. Daria is joined by Shannon Morgan, who was a member of the original group of Lioness soldiers, an army mechanic from Mena, Arkansas. She served in Ramadi from 2003 to 2004. During the 2004 battle for Ramadi, she was one of the group of army Lioness soldiers attached to the two former Marines during house-to-house searches. That put her at the center of some of the fiercest street fighting of the war. I'm going to hand it off to Daria here, and she's going to introduce our special guests for the podcast today. Thank you so much. Take it away, Daria. This is an episode I've been secretly waiting for and very excited to get to. Uh, our last episode was about the rescinding of the 2013 combat exclusion policy for women. So this is a perfect point, I think, to look back at the women uh, at, who helped get us there. And so today we have as our guests two of the original members of Team Lioness and women who really uh, contributed to the catalyst that helped get us to the rescinding of the combat exclusion policy. Uh, Kate Gatormson retired from the Army in 2020 as a colonel after 24 years of service. Her last post was as the director of the Army University Press and the editor-in-chief of the Military Review, but I know her best from her service as a captain and 1st Engineer Battalion who served in Iraq from 2003 to 2004, during which time she was a leader of the original Team Lioness. And Colonel Anastasia Breslow Kiniston is currently serving as a colonel in charge of G6 Communication Operations Division, uh, where she is a chief. And when I knew her uh, best when we were making the film, she was a first lieutenant and serving as an original member of Team Lioness. And all of that was basically about 20 years ago. So I thought this is a perfect time to, well, look back. And, and see what how things look now in with the perspective of time. And I thought um, I thought one of the one of the questions I could kick us off with was, you know, given that it's been 20 years and that you both played key roles in the original members, I think you were both the highest ranking women in Team Linus. And so um I just wanted to know when you look back and even back from, I mean, I know when we were, so we recorded our interviews with you in the film, say 2000, we started in 2005, 2006, it was over those years. So that was maybe three, four, five years out. And, but now what's changed about how you look at it? What are, what are some of the thoughts you have? Um, are there any headlines? Cause I know that, in the, um, sorry, I'll just add this in. I know that when we were doing the press for the film, and one of the things was that women didn't, ha you didn't have proper training and it was sort of an ad hoc 
like you had to get the mission done. Colonel Brinkley was like, well, I have these women who can fulfill these roles because of the cultural uh, norms. We need them. But, um, but Kate, you had something very interesting to say about training. Yeah, I think, um, good morning, by the way. It's good to see you guys. <laughs> Sorry, good morning. It's very good to see all of you. Yeah. Good morning. It's good to see you too. Um, you know, I think when we started getting the publicity back in the day, um, we we didn't really know until they shot the cover. Aaron Solero was in theater as an embed in the spring of 2004. And then four of our women were selected to be on the cover. I think it was the Marine Corps Times at the time highlighting Lioness. And then I really don't think we understood how much dialogue was going on in the DC area until we screened the film. And we saw all the media footage that you guys had put together in the documentary. Um, but one of the things that was routinely highlighted and has been talked about as I've participated in um, screenings and Q and A's over the years is the lack of training that we had for the mission. Um, uh, almost kind of like we were victims thrown into a situation and had to kind of figure it out. And I never felt that way about it personally. I felt that there was um, a need um, based on situation on the ground in Iraq. Um, we were able to fulfill the need. Um, and then thankfully we were successful in doing so because we had we not been, you know, this conversation could be occurring 10 years down the road from now. So the fact that I think that we were successful back then um, was attributed to when then I got further stationed at the National Training Center two years later, we were then training women, you know, um, to go and do this mission. So it, it caught up with the Army. That being said, you know, I always like to highlight the Army is a learning organization. We after action review everything. Um, I had many soldiers, men and women in theater in Iraq in 2004 that were asked to do things that they had zero experience with. I had a decontamination platoon that was attached to me that was the firefighting platoon for the base camp. They were cleaning porta potties. I had young male soldiers that um, had talents, and I figured out how we could use them best to solve problems on the ground. So as the lionesses um, went out and we started learning um, what we needed to do on the ground and what the maneuver units wanted them to do on the ground, we were able to come back and kind of fine tune rehearsals with the maneuver units and get better. So where we started um, the first mission, October 11th, 2003, and where we ended before we redeployed in August and September of 2004 was tremendous. And I, I would bet that every single one of the women that you know participate in one of these missions would feel the same way. Like we just got better at what we did, no different than, you know, any of our male counterparts and anything that they had going on. Um, but it was very deliberate. The army was very deliberate about learning from our mistakes or capitalizing on successes and then just getting better at what we do. So my follow-up question to that um, is in part, you were, I mean, this was 2003. So you were like the first, you know, like the first wave in, um, which, on some level, aside from the fact that 
you they were drawing on women because you know they needed them because of the cultural um sensitivities but i would imagine that to some degree across the board everybody was learning oh yes and so that was just i mean that's how these things function you train the best you can um but the enemy gets a vote as we always say and you know war is you have to be adaptive and flexible um you know, in any type of military situation, I would argue. Um, and that part of, you know, the art of it is learning um, and adapting and then being successful on the ground. But everybody in our organization was asked to do something that we didn't train for. Guarantee. No, no I definitely get that. And I think, um, Stacy, I think that one of the things in the film, especially, there is that one... Um, sequence where you're you're talking about there was a you know a large um missile i don't have the right name for for it you'll have missile launcher and uh but you would have to say but and you were kind of left there uh because it wasn't the marines weren't quite this i guess this would have been a 2004 in the april march april may um kind of battles um, you were left alone and suddenly you, you realized if you had to fire this, you wouldn't really know how. Um, and I think that's, it's, it's that jump that, um, and I think probably a lot of that, um, the, you know, when you were out with the Marines and this, an intensity that probably was like much further out than you'd anticipated at that time where, um, people got the idea, well, yeah, they weren't trained, but. How, how does that look to you now? How do you understand that now? So looking back, it's so much more nuanced than that. And, and it goes to what Kate was saying where, you know, we, we were trained, uh, and, but we, were, we had to adjust and adapt. What I've seen, especially listening to the previous podcast and what the CSTs and the FETs went through also, is it's less about the individual training. Uh, I remember we were doing an interview and someone, the way they phrased the question, they were asking about our training, but I think they asked if we felt comfortable in combat. And I honestly felt comfortable in combat because the noise and the individual training that we'd gotten, you know, made me feel prepared for the scenario of, of being in combat. But we weren't integrated with the teams. So it's the collective training that a unit does together. We weren't involved in the mission planning. We didn't cross train with the systems that they had in the units that we were supporting because we weren't integrated from the ground up. And so uh, at the time when I was talking about how being in combat and how the, the sights and sounds and everything, uh, I wasn't uncomfortable or afraid. Um, I, I thought I'd gotten off message. And then looking back now, I realized it's because the training deficit that we were facing wasn't at the individual level, you know, Shannon being the most experienced saw gunner. It was at the team and collective level and being integrated. And then listening to the CSTs and the FETs and talking about all this additional training that they had to be really great. And then still facing the challenges of integration and not being used properly because they weren't at necessarily all of the levels of training up to the collective exercise with the battalion and knowing the team from the outset that that is the the real challenge that we've got to face and having the women integrated 
and uh, being able to assess into these branches immediately should solve that problem in the future. That makes a lot of sense. And that brings me next to like something that you wrote, Kate, because you said when you were transitioning out, right? And you had that conversation with a brigadier general and he said, well, I never thought I'd be talking to you. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Right, tell us a little bit more about that because I'm just, I'm just wondering in a conversation like that, did you, in other words, did you bring thing something up like this? So, um, I think or it was did Stacy. Did you? I think in this particular event, it was very deliberate. It was June first uh, of two thousand four, and Colonel Brinkley was going to be meeting with um, the incoming chain of command that was going to take over for us in Ramadi. So it was the Second Infantry Division, Second Brigade the 2nd Infantry Division Assistant Division Commander for Maneuver was General Jordan at the time, and then their staff. And Colonel Brinkley told me to grab a couple of the Lioness ladies, and we were going to go have lunch in the DFAC. And this was, for me, I realized at the time it was really significant because I have an entire journal entry about it. And there was a private space in the back of the dining facility on the, on the camp and it was just the leadership, me, Shannon, and Rainey. None of the handlers were there. You know, there was no, you know, so it was just us having a private conversation. And we talked a lot of things. We talked about a lot of the different mission sets we had as a headquarters company and, you know, all the multitasking we did and things that we didn't know we were signing up to do when we deployed. But a significant portion of the conversation was lioness and i had shannon and rainy on the ground who were able to talk through a lot of the different missions that they had participated in to date and at towards the end of the conversation general jordan you know everybody's quiet when he starts to talk he looks at all of us and he says i never would have imagined having this conversation with you you guys are changing the army forever and I mean, it was huge at the time. We were like, we just kind of all looked at each other and we were floating, you know, back to the barracks afterwards because it was just, it was, um, it was a positive conversation. There was no discussion about policy at the time. It was a need. We were fulfilling a need. We were doing it well and they were proud of us. And uh, it was tremendous because I think Rainey and Shannon, hopefully they both remember that, um, you know, they went back and they were able to send that message and carry that message back to the rest of the, the gals that were supporting those types of missions. Wow. I mean, that must have been a huge, a huge moment for you. And so at that point, and so, so Stacey, you weren't in that meeting, but did that message get back to you? Did you know about that? Or, I mean, I guess I'm trying to, like, that seems like maybe like the inkling that there was some, you know, what you had done during your deployment as lionesses was going to start to resonate. I feel like there were so many things going on while we were there, and it was hard to uh, put it in a larger context. And so right. even now, because day to day, uh, working my job and, and, you know, raising my girls, uh, and, and trying to be supportive of Merlin's career. Um, I just haven't had the time to really reflect on uh, everything that 
we did and what it meant in context. So the podcast itself, listening back to the previous 10 episodes and uh, reading the, the Lioness Impact Report, you know, I generally minimize when I'm talking to people my contribution because, you know, it just feels like a, to me, a footnote in history. But when, when you look back and you see the progression from the Lioness to the Feds to the CST and the changes in policy and looking at what you, Daria, and the team did with, uh, with just putting forward um, all of the, the impacts and the, uh, the lessons that you learned, it's much wider than I had originally thought uh, the impact that Lioness and what we did um, in changing how the army looks at this. And I never put those connections together because, you know, living through it and just being stuck in the day to day, it, it seemed to me that it was uh, inevitable at some point, but someone has to take that first step. And, you know, this was important to that first step. I think I think that's absolutely right. This was like, and and sometimes I I feel like you know, there, I mean there are other instances in history when when that first one thing happens, and and, and certainly women have taken and I want to put this in the larger context. Women have there were women making huge advances by sheer will in the Gulf War and previous, um, and you know, previous conflicts, but um, there's, Shannon is with us now. Fantastic. Hey. <laughs> um, I had just been talking uh, to Stacy and Kate about, we were looking back about how the Linus missions look now and how looking back at them has changed over time because it was just, you know, a first, a first step. And I was saying, for myself that when the film came out in 2008, our advocacy work uh, my, with Meg uh, up on the hill, I know Stacy and Shannon, you were there. Um, Kate didn't make it, but you were there at other instances. Um, we, you know, it was really focused on healthcare and, and, and the, the recognition, you know, how getting proper uh, acknowledgement, uh, whether it was for Nava because of her hearing or or for Shannon or for anyone who'd really been in some of that combat, com those combat situations of getting it recognized so they could get VA benefits. And that's what we were focused on. But when I started to do the podcast, I did, I suddenly started to understand it in terms of, wow, from 2003 to 2013, like the lionesses and the progression to the FETs, the female engagement teams, and then the cultural support teams, they all were operating on this edge <laughs> and with this ambiguity of, yeah, we need you to do these things, but technically you're, the policy says no. And so you were operating. And, and I had many female engagement team members tell me that you know, they'd be sent out and then they would be pulled back because someone would come to the camp to visit. So it just gave me a different perspective. And I was wondering if that had occurred to you. I think what I saw was we redeployed in 2004 and I got restationed at the National Training Center in 2006. 
And I think I met, I saw you guys at Fort Stewart, Georgia, and we did some filming there. Yes. And at the time, we had women who were still, you know, serving whatever organizations they were serving in their military occupational specialty, but they were also assigned as lioness soldiers, and we were training them on how to conduct searches, for example, and how to properly search, you know, Iraqi women. Um, and we have some of that footage in the film. Yes. So I... I felt pretty good that, you know, within two years, even though policy was not there, um, the, the feeling of the army and, and, you know, the national training center is kind of tip of the spear for training units before they deploy felt that, you know, these women were going to be doing this. So we're going to prepare them the best we can before they deploy. Um, and that was good. So I felt like leadership in general knew that we were doing this, um, never was the intention that they roll out of the gate serving as infantrymen. They were rolling out the gate, supporting maneuver units to interact with women and children in the battlefield in whatever capacity that was. Um, you know, to this day, I still think Shannon and Rainey and some of the other women in April 2004, that was just very unique situation because Ramadi just went, you know, it was crazy. Um, we had everybody kind of dismounted, moving around Ramadi, engaging with enemy forces. Um, but typically, you know, the lioness teams, you know, Rebecca Nava went out of the wire a lot and handed out soccer balls to schools and kids and, and did right. things like that. So they didn't always find themselves in the unique situations that some of our teams did up front. And I think we learned, again, we learned and adapted on, you know, how to try and control them a little bit better um, when where we position them in a convoy, how they interact after the maneuver forces go in and seize, um, you know, a home and get it under control before the women, you know, walk in and then control the women, uh, the women and children. So we just continued to learn, but I absolutely felt that the leadership you know, at least the leadership that I saw, and I was still captain and then major at the time. So a much lower level, but I felt like everybody was on board trying to do the right thing and get these women trained to do what they're going to do when they deploy, regardless of what policy right. said at the time. Right. And I, I feel that there was a, that um, <clears throat> from, from the outside perspective, looking in and talking to people like uh, Captain Lori Manning, who was involved in a lot of the policy and the Washington stuff, it was like, um, you know, they, there were two separate worlds, and and the 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 armed services they just they just needed to do what they needed to do, and they just wanted the politicians just like like just kind of stay put because otherwise, you know, it's. It, it would disrupt their whole operation, so to speak. But Stacey, I just wanted to ask you, where where were you in 2013 when the combat policy uh, exclusion for women was rescinded? And do you remember, like, was that like, wow, okay, let's see what happens now? <clears throat> I believe I was at Fort Campbell. Uh, and I was the uh, rear detachment commander for the 101st Division uh, Support Battalion. So, um, and I had my, uh, it was 2013, right? Yeah. 
I was pregnant really? with my first child. <laughs> you so, too, right, Kate? <laughs> no, I had just had Gabriella after this happened. <laughs> oh, okay. So I, I remember thinking that it was incredible and that I hoped we would be able to assess enough people in, because that's, that's always the challenge, right? It's, it's getting people to want to be a part so that uh, they're not uh, excluded or treated as other because there are just so few of them uh, in the organization. But uh, like I said, I honestly, most of those things pass me by as I'm, I'm stuck in the day-to-day -day grind of whatever's going on. So with the division uh, forward in Afghanistan for uh, another rotation, it was, it was, I was very knee deep in what was going on day-to-day. It's interesting um, because as I've talked to um, <clears throat> and I've tried to like kind of create the arc from the in the podcast anyway, from the original stories and the profile of the original team lioness in the army and then the Marines and female engagement teams and cultural support teams. One of the things is that I and I remember this with you, Stacy, because I have a lot of the pictures of you out with the little kids, you know, pictures of you and little kids. And I imagined you possibly out with Nava or I don't know which missions, but, you know, that were more like meet and greets or, you know, sort of community extending yourselves into the community. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is there were, there were certain elements. I mean, everybody focuses in now, oh, where was the combat? <laughs> But there were all these other elements and those and then you see those kind of more developed um, and being utilized more formally as a kind of like, yeah, let's see how we can do that when it comes to female engagement teams. Because in Afghanistan, they they went out a lot to see what what did women need what were their medical needs what were how were they doing and I and, and I feel like that was ex extension of that in other words that community relations in a way and re, you know becoming known and I, so that's why I'm always fascinated because I really and this is how I see it from the outside and, but you guys tell me if I'm how you see it is it's this really evolutionary sense of how continuing to understand how women can be used in this kind of landscape to get a better handle on, you know, where you are, the population you're dealing with. So, and I, I misspoke earlier, uh, 2013, uh, Genevieve was one. I had just had her actually, I had her in 2012. So uh, yeah, new mother was not paying attention to anything. Um, Busy mom. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, when it comes to the, the FETs and, and Afghanistan and how they were using them in that context, I think, you know, that entire uh, theater of the war was so different than Iraq. Um, before I got to uh, Fort, Fort Campbell, I had worked with 189th Infantry Brigade and they were uh, doing the provincial reconstruction teams. So I was uh, training 12 commanders to go take 12 provinces in Afghanistan. And we were partnering with Department of States and USAID to make sure that their personnel that were going to deploy 
uh, were embedded and integrated with the provincial reconstruction teams, and some of them were female. Um, I remember Paula Lloyd, who uh, was actually killed in Afghanistan after we uh, had our, our training in 2009, um, was one of the USAID workers that had come out and was training with us and learning how we spoke and, and how to embed with her team. So, um, you know, for the more austere environments, it made a lot of sense to have uh, military women out there who had experience with the weapon systems. And we were trying to get the USAID and the Department of State personnel integrated and understand how our radios worked because there was an incident, uh, I believe, in um, in Kabul where a team had been hit and all of the military were injured and you had the one Department of State guy who didn't know how to operate the radio, couldn't call for help or, or anything else. So very similar to our systems, except this is a, a man, he's just not integrated with the team uh, that, you know, based on that, we, as Kate was saying, is flexible and adapt. So now when we're doing this train up for these provincial reconstruction teams at Fort Liberty, uh, they are trying to bring in the Department of State and USAID workers to um, integrate with the teams ahead of time so that they understood our systems and could help themselves and help the team uh, in situations like that. Wow, that's, um, I mean, because you didn't work 2003, 2004, you weren't anywhere near like State Department or the USAID people were you or were they, they that was still early days it was early they were operating around yeah. us in and around us and they would use the base camp kind of as a safe spot to come and resupply and rest and then go out on their missions but very rarely uh were we supporting them i think a few times some of the maneuver units might set up a cordon on you know so that these guys could go in and you know execute a mission but that was kind of the extent of it. And certainly we, you know, didn't know a whole lot of the details regarding it other than giving them food and shelter and fuel and getting them back out the door. Ironically, um, the, uh, uh, just on a personal note, I'll mention that um, the uh, Iraq was the last call uh, that my father got from the State Department to come back in and work for him when when all this because he had worked for USAID and you know he he didn't want to do it at the time but I do remember that <laughs> it was just um you know and then it was very interesting because it just seemed like the wild west <laughs> especially for USAID people but probably good he didn't go um but shifting the conversation a bit uh I was just wondering so now when you when you look so because kate you got out in 2020 so but during that time after the rescinding of the combat exclusion policy and then 2015 when they sort of the policy became gender integration which i mean and i know the whole point is like it didn't happen like that it took all the services had to review and study but have you witnessed the changes have you and I mean in other words have you looked back and it's like well if I had had those opportunities I might have done this or I might have done that or have you just you know noticed how it's changed things or maybe it hasn't been that big a deal 
Oh no, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Um, you know, I remember I had just gotten stationed in the Pentagon in March of 2013. And I remember grabbing coffee with Dave Brinkley at the time who had retired and was working on gender integration. Um, and he brought, we went and had a cup of coffee and he brought all these slides and he was showing me how women were going to start ranger school. And I just remember being super excited, but also a little bit jealous um, because I was one, um, you know, as a second lieutenant platoon leader with a bunch of my peers from West Point in Korea back in 1997, there was only one platoon that I could lead in that organization because I because I was a woman. And that was the only reason why I got that platoon. So I remember the frustration of not being able um, to do what my male peers did. And given those opportunities, I felt like I wasn't going to have the same chance at a career as they would because I would never have an opportunity to come on command line units. Um, so having that conversation with him in 2013 and hearing about the women that were going to have all these opportunities to attend all this formal training that the army offers at the highest levels um, was delightful. Um, and there's a whole network of women supporting these women as they are the first to do all of these things. Um, and I would like to say that the majority of women feel the same way, that we're very supportive of it. We're so happy it's happening. It's long overdue. Because at the end of the day, as a leader, you want to maximize the talent you have in your organization, regardless of, you know, any personal features they have and figure out what they're good at and then, you know, have them do it um, so that your organization right. is as successful as it possibly can be. Um, so and it's, pretty, well, it's pretty awesome. And now we have women serving at the highest levels of the army, you know, the right. of the army is a woman. Right. So. I mean, it's head, now the head of the Coast Guard. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's... All, the, all the professional, you know, all the military schools have women on the senior level staffs. You know, we are now everywhere. Um, and it's it's awesome. Right. And so, Stacy, just being at Fort Liberty, have you seen, because I know that um, when, uh, actually, when we first met you, you were out in Kansas, right? Yes. So, but then, but you, you were born at Fort Liberty, which was then Fort Bragg, and you are now at um, Fort Liberty, and also your husband, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kiniston, is, yes. um, what is, what is his command post there? He is in charge of the 50th Signal Battalion here at Fort Liberty. So I love it because it's this dual, like like you, Kate, um, a dual military couple. And there's, but I, how do you think the, it, I mean, it seems like for, in your examples that the Army, when it can, is accommodating that because clearly they've invested a lot in each of, at, before you retired, certainly they've invested a lot in each of you. So how we are. That? very fortunate to have uh, supportive commanders and supportive uh, leadership at, at all levels, honestly, to, to keep our family integrity as much as possible. And we've been able to do that and find jobs where we can work together. Uh, what's fantastic is right now, my boss, uh, Brigadier General Sutton, uh, who 
when she was a lieutenant, worked for my dad when he was the DBC of 35th. So, you know, there's connections there. Um, she is dual military and she is the senior signalier on Fort Liberty. So it's fantastic. And then for the senior signaliers on Fort Liberty, there's Brigadier General Sutton and there's uh, four colonels. Uh, three of which are female right now. So, you know, there's a lot of support system and a lot of changes happening uh, at the senior levels. And what's amazing about having the combat exclusion policy lifted and having all of the branches open up to females is if you look, historically, uh, combat arms are, are going to be the chief of staff of the army. And, you know, with without those being lifted, there was, there was one path. Uh, aviation is combat arms that females could be in. Uh, potentially as a path to the most senior levels in the army. But now it's wide open to to have that possibility of having a chief of staff of the army who who's combat arms and female. So, you know, the opportunities and, and the shift in uh, the mentality is uh, impressive. So we get a lot more support for uh, females and dual military uh, just because you see more people in the leadership levels who have an understanding of it. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be a huge um, sort of awareness and leap forward in terms of really holding together, um, you know, individuals which like maybe have already been invested a lot. Like, Kate, you went to West Point and you got all this training and you were, I mean, imagine if you, you know, if, if they hadn't been so accommodating, you know, how would that, you know, when you were married and you had kids, how would that have worked out and even for you? And so I think it's like amazing because it's not just a matter of what one partner or the other is going to, um, you know, wants to do. It's like, you've been, you've been invested in <laughs> at a certain point, you have a, an amount of expertise that might take another 10 or 15 years to get someone else to that point. So um, it's like, I mean, I just feel like that's an important point to raise because it makes it, you know, it makes a difference about how you, you know, how you keep people, good people long-term. The army as, you know, a few years before I started transitioning out, the army recognized this among other things and, and just started doing a much better job at what they call talent management. Um, but when I was growing up in the army and then when Doug and I got married, um, we had to be pretty flexible. Like we knew that, um, our family came first and if the army wasn't going to be supportive of us staying together, then we either one or both of us would exit. And that was kind of a decision we made. We felt that the success of staying together was always tied to, um, generally one of us taking a, you know, a bigger role and the other one kind of taking whatever role the army was willing to give us at the time. Um, but I will say, at, during the, when I was stationed in the Pentagon, Doug was getting ready to take command and the army wanted me to go do a job. And um, they were gonna have us about 200 miles apart. And um, it took my senior leader, who at the time happened to be the chief of staff of the army, <laughs> to, <laughs> to get involved, to get Doug and I, and Kathy, who's helping facilitate the podcast with Stacy there, was working with me at the time. Um, but, you know, we had to get him involved to keep us together. 
Um, but we were very prepared to walk away from the army at the time with everything we had invested, which at the time was a combined 40 plus years, probably, um, if they weren't going to make it work for us. I think we've gotten better at it. Stacy probably can talk about it a little bit more. I, I think they targeted young families. They want to make it work. They want to keep people who want to serve in the army. They want to keep talent in the army. So I think at the lower level, lowest, most leader levels, they want to make it work. And then, you know, when people get in a bind, I think there's usually somebody in the chain of command that's willing to help to make it work. But the other things I would say have gotten so much better since my time and Stacy when she was younger is, you know, daycare has gotten better. Paternal leave is out there now. Longer leave for women after they have babies is out there now. You know, soldiers can go get help with infertility. Um, there's just so much going on in a good way now for women and families in the army than we had years ago. That's fantastic. I mean, just, and I just want, I want to pull Shannon in here because I know you hear, you're, so you're hearing us talk about this and you were, um, and especially this little, last time I'll go back to it, but um, Kate and Stacy both, both talked about, you know, where they were and, and what the rescinding of the combat exclusion policy meant to them. And I was just wondering, I wanted to get, because you you left shortly after you returned, you left the military shortly after you returned home, but I know that you've, you've followed things and are aware. And I was just wondering if you had a questions for them or if you could, you know, tell us about, were you aware of that? How momentous was that for you when it happened? Or maybe it was not. Um, well, in 2013, I was in Oklahoma and I remember getting a phone call from one of my friends that was like, hey, did you see the news about the combat exclusion policy being rescinded? And I like literally did cartwheels over it. I was like, you're kidding me. This is literally what we went on the hill to have done. I'm like, yay, they finally accomplished the mission. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I... I and I know that, um, like for Stacey was saying, it just felt like the lioness in terms of your long career and all all that you've done. And I know that I see you, I look at you, I was like, oh, she, you know, you were a lioness. But like, on the other hand, I don't really know what I'm talking about in the sense that you've had this long career and you had, you're a colonel, so you've had all kinds of other accomplishments. And the lioness was just something that happened between 2003 and 2004. But it did, you know, it it kickstarted, it contributed, you know, it put in, it, it was a big push and, and it, it was just really a, set off, I think, a kind of domino effect that helped inevitably, I mean, it just made it inevitable, like you couldn't, it wasn't sustainable without doing this. And I think that's what, because the, the combat solution policy, you know, when the ACLU filed it and of course it had gone on there had been people talking about it for a couple of years about filing things before then but after the ACLU filed it like you know two months later in January I think it was filed in 2012 in January uh Leon Panetta was like okay <laughs> eh, we drop it <laughs> not a problem um, it was long done it was just a formality at that point right because it, it was really like okay let's Let's clear the plumbing, so to speak. And um, um, but um, Stacy, I just I also wanted you to tell us about 
because you're more than just a lioness. <laughs> I just want to tell us about a, like a like kind of a thumbnail sketch of your career and your work and some of your uh, accomplishments um, and, and that have led you to where you are right now. So I've been very fortunate after uh, serving with uh, first engineers, they, they gave me my first command opportunity. So I got to command a signal company uh, in, in first ID. And then after that, uh, you know, went and trained with the provincial reconstruction teams in, uh, in Fort Liberty, which was incredible because you had these Air Force and Navy commanders that were taking these provincial reconstruction teams uh, with a mix of Air Force, Navy, and Army people. And we were trying to integrate uh, USAID and Department of State. So you got to see this uh, big building of uh, governmental agencies trying to affect social change in Afghanistan. Uh, and, and, you know, really watching the Army transform from just a warfighting organization to uh, a building organization for stability uh, in, in theater was, was quite uh, impressive, right? And, you know, it, it shows that our organization isn't, isn't, you know, just shooting and killing and, and doing all of those things. Uh, so my worldview kept getting bigger as we kept moving and transitioning and getting new jobs in the Army. Uh, I got to go to Fort Campbell. I deployed again to um, Afghanistan, this time as a company commander. Uh, I came back and worked in the Pentagon and, uh, you know, was in charge of the budget. And I got to see how politics and Congress gets involved in how how we operate. So, you know, Leon Panetta with the uh, with the rescinding of the combat exclusion policy, I think the army was there a long time ago, but you know, politically it's kind of hard to do those things because you know people put it on their agendas and it becomes lightning rod on whether females can be in the draft and whether females can serve in combat. It's, it's a societal problem, not necessarily something that we, we are dealing with in, in the service. Uh, as a reflection of society, there are people that have problems with it, but as an organization, I think, I think we were there. Um, so after working in the Pentagon, uh, I took command of a signal battalion, which was amazing. It was the best experience I've ever had, uh, being in charge of 500 people and uh, you know, supporting their readiness and their careers and, and doing missions all over the world. Um, and then I got assigned in Korea, uh, worked on the 8th Army staff, love Asia, I wanna go back there again. Um, got to work for an incredible uh, general officer, General Burleson, who's one of those, you know, throughout the podcast, you hear all of these men who are advocates for, uh, you know, the people who are, are just the best at the job, regardless of gender or anything else, very much like Colonel Brinkley. Uh, he's one of those people. So he pulled me up to be his uh, executive officer, which is, you know, I'm very grateful for because I think it's what eventually got me promoted to, to Colonel was having that opportunity and experience. Um, and then we came here to Fort Bragg and working on the Forcecom staff and staying in right now uh, to see what the future holds and supporting Merlin in his career. So just amazing experiences. And, and now, 
you know, being in the forums that I'm in, I, I'm getting to see how the Army is continuing to adapt and transform as we look at uh, a, a different operating environment with Ukraine and what's going on in Israel. Right, right. And that, I mean, I think you bring up an important point that, um, you know, for a while, the as an organization, it wasn't, I won't speak for the Marines, but for the Army, it wasn't necessary. it wasn't really an issue. I mean, there could always be individual people, but it was more of a political thing. And that's something that, talking to Lori Manning, that she, she was continually monitoring. And I think that was like the impediment for a while, but it, um, it, do you, just because you're at um, Fort Liberty right now, do you see, you know, the young women coming in and, and just sort of, I mean, I know they do special training, special ops is somewhere on Fort Liberty, am I right? <laughs> it is, but they are uh, compartmentalized on the, on the post. So okay, I actually so. don't have a, a lot of interaction with, uh, with them and, and I don't, uh, unfortunately get to that level very often to see the integration uh, across the, the military. Wow, that's, well, it's, I mean, it's, it really has changed. I mean, the whole arc of your careers really reflects that. Um, anyway, that's how I see it on the outside, looking in. And um, are, not, are you aware of, um, there's legislation in Congress right now where they're trying to sort of retroactively, it's called the JAX Act, and they're retroactively trying to recognize um, first the cultural support teams, which seems to have had more actual um, like paperwork representing who participated and who didn't, you know, like and what they did and everything. Uh, but they want to also uh, there, there are some uh, women veteran advocates who are trying to see if they can get the lionesses and the female engagement teams also recognized in that. Are you guys aware of that legislation? I only became aware when you told me about it. Um, okay. Well, it's, it's ongoing, so we'll see. <laughs> fantastic. I think it's a little problematic in that, at least back you know, to Shannon's time, um, it's based on how good record keeping was, you know, at our level. Um, you know, I had 25 women assigned or attached to us and all but one went on a mission, but I have my books, my commander books from back in the day, and I still have them. So I have, you know, everything I'm doing day by day with names and bumper numbers associated with that. Um, it would, it would probably be pretty challenging because there wasn't a lioness military occupational specialty on the books. <laughs> it was, somebody's additional duty. Um, right. so, so that could be challenging. I could see how that could be challenging. I'm trying to figure that out for some people. Right. I mean, I think it's, it's like the catch 22. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if, if technically you weren't supposed to be doing it, like in terms of how it was represented in the political world, um, then you're not going to have the records that you would need, but, uh, Anyway, I've just mentioned that because it's just an interesting case because I've been, I know they've been listening to the podcast to, um, um, you know, 
members of, of Congress and their staff to listen. Not that we're, I mean, we're just giving an overview of, of and the progression of it, but certainly there are many, many women who, um, you know, who participated. But um, I mean, the numbers are still relatively small. If they just did it, it probably wouldn't, you know, it's not going to put a dent in anything, I don't think, in terms of money or anything. Um, but, you know, hopefully it's something that, you know, serious people are working on really hard. It would be, it would be really tremendous. But um, hopefully, I mean, the one thing that I was also fascinated with talking to some of the women who participated, say, in the cultural, as cultural support team members, is that they still had, um, even that, though that, you know, they trained for it. And as you saw um, in one of those episodes, Kate, you mentioned like, <clears throat> yeah, they went to Sephora as <laughs> part of their training to kind of just like interact with people. I mean, like, you know, who, who'd have thought? Um, but, and yet they still had to go over there and it was separate from their, their MOS. And then they had to come back and be in, you know, return to their regular jobs where there was no, um, no real acknowledgement because people didn't really know about it. Um, and so it was like this, still this idea of women having two jobs. So hopefully now, whenever, if, depending on, I don't know how the world goes, <laughs> um, you know, everybody can just have one job or they can have the job they were trained for. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I do have a, I have another question for you guys. Looking back, I am amazed now when I think back, like, I think Meg and I knew like, wow, you were, you know, we had done all this research and we knew you, you were the women who we wanted to talk to, who we thought would, could represent the situation and had the stories to tell. But I'm, I'm constantly amazed that you said yes, <laughs> that you allowed us to come out and film you. And I just want to like acknowledge that um, because it just seemed, you know, when I look at the film now, I mean, parts of it still, you know, really, you know, really your stories touch me. And um, I'm just like, I can't even imagine what it would be like if I, you know, for me, like to some, if anyone came to me and said, I wanted to film, I don't have anything to say <laughs> about it. But how, what was that like? I mean, did how hard a decision was it? Because it for all of you, it just seems like, wow, I mean, I'm so glad you said yes, but... <laughs> For me particularly, I was sitting at my desk at company command and working late when I got the phone call. I mean, I'm surprised they caught me at my desk uh, and saying that, hey, uh, you know, PAO has this thing going on. You need to come down and get interviewed. So it, it did not feel like an option at the time. <laughs> it felt like a direction. So, uh, you know, I went down. It was a little bit surprising because I think, you know, you were at First Engineers and uh, you had the cameras set up in the interview room and sit down on the lights of there and you start asking questions. But because it, it felt sanctioned uh, and it, I was in an official setting, it was, it was very, I felt safe to talk about it. And then you and Daria, I mean, you and Meg with the, with the presentation, it's just very easy to talk to both of you. So uh, the story just kind of came out 
uh, and it was good to talk about it because you know most of the time and, and i'm sure the other lionesses has that same experience uh, they're not opportunities to discuss what happened so it was actually kind of cathartic too because you deal with uh you know the guilt we lost so many people during that deployment um of of coming home and having experiences that other people don't really understand so it was nice to uh, be able to discuss it and then uh, you know continue to meet up and then it, it helped keep all of the lionesses connected so you know being able to reconnect with Rebecca and with Shannon throughout the years at these events or you know talking on zoom for for this has been uh, incredible good well I'm glad yeah I mean I think one thing that did surprise us I think and um, is is an interesting thing. I mean, I think it's all changed dramatically now, but in 2003, 2004, when we were getting started um, and we were early on before we'd connected with you, we'd gone down to Fort Bragg, Fort Liberty now, but Fort Bragg then a couple of times. And they, when we were just saying we wanted to do stories, we knew roles that women were playing in, the military right now we're changing over in Iraq and we just we were interested in in profiling and I found that the the leadership down at uh Fort Bragg then Fort Liberty now um was very open to that focus I mean I had to write lots of permissions to get the okay but they were very open to that just like oh uplifting women and I think there was must have been some sense of that. They really, they were proud to some extent and they didn't mind. Um, they were very open to the press early on in the early, I mean, a lot of, I think, journalists did in bed as they went over. Is that is that how it seemed to you? Yeah, I think from my standpoint, again, the Army being a learning organization, the public affairs community at large just got better at this. So if it's a good story and it's showing success, let's highlight it. Let's be the story. Let's be a part of it. Let's allow it to happen and let's participate in the storytelling. I think, you know, similar to Stacy, I think when I was stationed at Fort Riley and got the call to participate in an interview, um, I felt I was voluntold to do that, which is fine. Um, so I went and participated, but I think early on in meeting A, you and Meg were very lovable and wow. you created a very safe environment for us. Um, but I think all five of us felt we were only a very small portion of a much bigger story. And then you guys kept coming back. And then we were like, hmm, what exactly is going on? Um, and really, I don't think until you screened it in New York City and had us all there, did we realize what we participated in. And I think we were all just like silent, like we didn't know what to say. We were shocked, um, but excited and um, I think honored to be a part of it. Yeah, we were, so. we were honored. We felt like we were... Um, had something we had to take great care of as we told it. And I know, Shannon, I think I was a voice out of the blue when when your mother picked up the phone in Arkansas. And I'm like, I'm gonna speak to Shannon. <laughs> yeah, I was actually out of town and my mom called me and she said, 
uh, Shannon, there's these people from New York trying to get a hold to you. And I was like, oh, God, who do I owe money to? That was my first thought. And then she's like, no, they want to talk to you about what you did in Iraq on those lioness missions. And I was like, oh, God, well, well, yeah, we can talk about it. You know, I'd, we'd already done that uh, article for Army Times. And right. I thought, well, this this must be coming off of that. I had no idea that you guys actually wanted to, to do a film at that point. And then I was like, I just don't want to misrepresent Arkansas. But then I've got plenty of predecessors before me that have already done that. So I'm good. I'm, and I decided to be a part of it. I wanted to make sure that what, what took place to me at the VA never took place for another female when she comes in um, with PTSD and problems and needing help. I just wanted to make sure nobody else was ever turned away and that they knew we were out there doing what we're doing. Right. And I mean, I think, you know, we, we went to, um, we first spoke, I think David Colonel Brinkley was at the Army War College in Pennsylvania at the time. And so we went down there, like before we talked to you, we talked to him and we had a very in-depth interview with him and we were sweating bullets <laughs> because we had some sense that if he thinks we're okay, you know, like his word is probably going to count. If he's like, don't talk to these people, you know, you probably might not have said yes. So, but we found him like an amazing storyteller and just full of, and, and ready to talk. So we were, I mean, it was like a great interview. And then we went, before we met you in Kansas, we were, we talked to Colonel Cabry. And, and so and I think hopefully that helped. And I know there were phone calls between, he was at Fort Leavenworth at the time, Fort yeah. And, and I know, and then we were driving to Fort Riley and I, I know there were phone calls before we got in the car to go. They were like, yeah, they should be okay. <laughs> so just from our perspective, we felt like we were definitely jumping through some hoops, but it was, you know, it was very challenging in a fun way. So, um, is there anything in the film that when you look at now, you're like, I wish I could have said this or, or that's not quite it or, or anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I think when I go back and, and see it, and I usually go back and try and watch it prior to something like this, um, which they don't, these types of events don't occur as frequently as they used to. Um, I think I was still a little guarded. You know, at the time I was you know, 30 years old, I was a young captain, I still wasn't sure what, you know, people outside of our organization thought, nor did I really care. I was just trying to do my job and go home at night. Um, so I think I was a little guarded. Um, you know, I, I kept good journals, I kept good commander's books there and have a lot of detail on a lot of things that I don't think I shared sometimes when we had conversations. Um, just to be careful, you know, a, right. not, a never to put somebody else in the position that they felt uncomfortable with something that I may or may not say. Um, you know, there, there were 
some things covered in the film, um, you know, where we we talked about an event, but it it probably didn't go down exactly like it was portrayed in the film. And that's okay um, because it protected or shielded somebody um, that may have been affected otherwise. So I think I just go back and I think maybe I was a little guarded. Maybe I would have said some additional things. Maybe you would have used some additional content. I think part of that is in a documentary, you know, finding that safe spot with somebody, but while you're still on active duty, it's a little more complex. Shannon, A, is pretty outspoken to begin with, but she was also removed from the army, you know, during a lot of the filming and the rest of us weren't. Um, and I think to some degree, um, we're a little nervous, you know, about what we could say and what we couldn't say. And then um, when you talk about combat in general or losing people over there, that's also just something very difficult and challenging to discuss and dialogue about, I think. Um, not knowing how it'll get used, you know, or how it will be received, I guess. So that's only, that's what yeah. I think is that, you know, I could have shared more. I wish I would have shared more. Um, but at the time I probably shared what I could share. Well, I, I mean, Shannon, because you were out, you were able to share so much. And like, we took that as like a sacred duty um, to, to, treat that so carefully in the film um but Kate and Stacy I have to say like you did open up your journals to us and you both read and those were just fantastic and it was almost like a film doesn't have to have everything it, it can't have everything it can only be so long and it can only it can't a film can't be all the history because that's what a book can be. <laughs> but a film has to really deliver um, like the an, an emotional uh, uh, context, a kind of like a psychological geography of what it was like. And I think that's, you shared enough so that we were able to create that to the extent that we, I mean, we, at the time, we only knew so many questions to ask. I mean, it was like with you're doing it, you know, we did the best we could and you you answered. I mean, I don't, how do you feel about that, Stacey? Because you you really did share some wonderful journal entries as well as Kate. I, I'm not as prepared as Kate, so I did not rewatch the film before before uh, the podcast. Um, but I don't I don't recall any time that I've seen it or or talked about it having any regrets or wishing I had said something different. It was, it captured a moment of time. And, and uh, I, like I said, I felt comfortable sharing uh, with you what had happened. Um, you know, maybe like Kate was saying, we're a little bit more guarded on what our opinions were for the future. Cause we just didn't know the environment that we were in uh, and, and perhaps what it meant or should mean, but you know, you captured what we went through very realistically uh and but but like kate when we saw the film i think we were all a little bit surprised it was just the five of us because we were expecting to be a small part of a story of like 24 people uh rather than it be focused but i understand for narrative purposes it, it makes more sense not to divide it up amongst you know 24 different people but uh you know looking back um i, I definitely don't regret participating in it and and i don't 
I don't look back and wish I had said something differently or done something differently. Well, just to give context uh, to that, so you can understand when the film was finished before anyone really saw it beyond our, the people, you know, in the editing and our producers, we rented out actually a theater, fairly big theater in um, Midtown and we flew all the women in. And so it was the five women in our film and myself and Meg, and we sat down and we watched it and there was no one else in the theater. And cause we just wanted them to have that sense that, what do you think? And if anyone was highly disturbed or concerned about anything, we were still in a position to, to some extent adapt or change or, or, or deal with it. But we wanted to like um, do that. And I will say that Meg and I, you know, we're, we're just from a completely other perspective of like camera shoots and this and that. We're so far in our world. We're, we're like, what do you mean? You didn't think it was going to be, there were other people. <laughs> that was it. That was it. You guys were it. Didn't you get that? But we had a good laugh about that in, in a way. But it but it's so interesting to us because that larger filmmaking process in these stories, um, you know, it's just completely different perspectives and two different jobs. You're not seeing them from, you know, you're not necessarily seeing it from the same way, especially at that time. I mean, everybody's making films now and everything's captured and everything's edited. So I think there's a lot more familiarity with the process now, but, um, you know, back then that anyway, I remember that time. That's a seminal moment in my life for you guys with you. So what do you think, Shannon? Are we covering everything? I was just going to say, um, if I would have known that I was going to end up in so many OIF, OEF, PTSD groups with Marines, I probably would have rephrased my opinion about them a little better. I'm just going to say, because that has caught me some flack from time to time. Well, I don't know um, if I ever told you the story, but, um, you know, I will say that um, Colonel Kennedy, uh, at the time, he was very accessible, and he was not hard to get, and he was he was very open to having us talk to him, and even um, and also a lot of because they had his um, one of his sort of his right hand guy had brought a little video camera from home and taken a lot of that footage when they were in Ramadi. And um, yeah. they had, uh, you know, he had all these tapes and he had, I think he was teaching at a sniper school in um, Texas at the time in near Waco. And so I called him and I was, you know, and Colonel Kennedy had said, oh, yeah, you know, maybe, you know, he's got all this footage. So I was calling this phone. Finally, we set up this meet in a hotel room in Washington. And like he flew in, we had dinner and I was like, trying to be real nice and we just want it we're just gonna use it just to like you know show what was going on and 
And he was like, well, I don't know. This was Friday night. Was, uh, we went, I don't know. We'll see. I don't want to get burned by it. How are you going to use it? You know, I was very reticent. So we had this long, long dinner. I like telling him my life story, <laughs> everything like that. So then I said, well, you know, I have a little editing uh, set up in my hotel room. So come tomorrow morning and I'll show you and we can look through the fit footage together. So he came in uh, Saturday morning and he had a old brown bag with just tons and tons of tapes. And he's like, here, just take it. Don't make me look bad and send it back. That was it. And that was, um, you know, I mean, that was just great because that helped us sort of create, use that footage to create the atmosphere uh, that had gone on in April in 2004, April, March, whatever, and the whole, when the Marines got there. So, I mean, we did, we, the Marines were, they were many things, but they were also very uh, helpful when it came to the making right. of the film. I definitely appreciate that. They were very open and it was all good. And afterwards, Colonel Kennedy called up and said, you know, it's the fog of war. We don't always see everything the same way, necessarily, but you did a good job. So I thought, fair enough. Yeah, that footage I thought was um, incredible. You know, and when we had friends watch the film, they they asked where the film came from, and they're like, "How did somebody have that much time in his role to capture all that footage? Because it's amazing, absolutely amazing." Right. Does the yeah. army does the army have good footage like that of of, I, of our maneuver? I have no idea. I've never seen footage like that. You know, at the time, um, you know, we didn't have a public affairs officer in our organization. People were fulfilling that role as like an additional duty and really not doing a whole lot with it back in 03. Yeah. I mean, I think the um when divots formed, they were very helpful. And believe it or not, when you guys know what divots is, right? Okay, so they, but when they were just forming in 2004 or five, I think, and I actually called them up and I gave them a shot list for Ramadi that I wanted. And they had someone on the ground go and shoot the shots that I wanted. So I felt like it was a second unit. Of course, they won't do that now. It's completely closed off but it was just part of the i feel like a real openness at the time to um which was kind of amazing i mean you won't see that again i don't think no and we started you know deploying a lot of the mobile public affairs detachments back then because as the guard and reserve forces were rotating in and out they had a lot of those assets the active duty didn't have and you know, because of rotation fatigue, you had a lot of these public affairs units going over there. So we got, again, we learned and we got better at it, you know, as we yeah. went along. And we learned that we need to make it accessible for people and help tell the story. And I wanted to ask though about, because um, one of the things in doing the podcast that um, I did was surprised to learn, but uh, yes, there were a lot of people um, in the army, in fact, who did think that Team Lioness and the Lioness program originated with the Marines. And like, 
How did that happen? Um, that is a good question on where it started. I think part of it was, um, you know, the, the four women, army women ended up on the cover of the Marine times, which was crazy. Right. So right. people who weren't familiar with the military probably didn't even recognize the fact that those were army soldiers. Oh, um, cover. so that is my first understanding of kind of how it hit print you know, and you have faces. Okay. Um, and then I think the Marines started telling the story, you know, it was successful. They were having some success with it. They start owning and telling the story. We did not. And there was a vacuum within the army of talking about it and highlighting it. And then I think, you know, it grew some feet and, and carried. Um, and then, you know, there wasn't anybody high enough up, I think, to correct the record, or there wasn't a need or a feeling that they needed to correct the record. Um, I have always felt that there needs to be a, a correction of the record because, you know, without a doubt, when you watch films or there's dialogue about FETs and CSTs, they always talk about the Marines. You know, the Lioness film talks about, you know, she's a Marine, but they do a nice little nod in the very first episode of Sheridan's, you know, show where they say it started off as an army program. So. Right, they do. She's. They have. It's like a twenty-second conversation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, that they was do. Good. That no, was they. They. This is a twenty-second origin story planted right. in there. So. That's right. But, but it was not the Marines' idea, and the right. Marines, I will tell you, pushed back on this idea until there was demonstrated success by one five field artillery and Colonel Cabry and Colonel Brinkley, and at the time it was Buck Connor who was our brigade commander. Um, and once we started having success, it was kind of pushed on the Marines a little bit more to make them more successful through the brigade leadership, in, right. my, in my opinion, is kind of what I saw on the ground. Um, and they were super nervous about doing it in the beginning, the Marine Corps was. Um, right. But as they, you know, grew successful and figured out how to integrate them properly, you know, then they got used more and more. But, you know, no doubt that, you know, Shannon and Stone were the first two women to participate in one of those missions wow anyway it's it's really amazing but anyway i think the for some reason the i've had more response in terms of getting that fact across from the podcast <laughs> than from the film so yeah. go figure <laughs> um well before we go i was just hoping that um if starting with Kate, you could tell us what you've been doing after you've uh, left, retired in 2020. And um, I know you worked, you were uh, the editor-in-chief at the Army Press, Army Times Press, mm -hmm. or just Army Press? Yep, Army University Press. Army University Press. And how did you get to that role from being a PAO for so long? Working in um, public affairs. Yeah, I think, um, well, you know, I was, so because I was in the engineer unit as a company commander, I was an engineer for the first decade of my career. And I transitioned into public affairs, as we talked about earlier, you know, family life, army life, in thinking that I wouldn't compete with my husband for any jobs and that we would flip-flop deployments and never have to deploy simultaneously. I became a public affairs officer, almost, you know, taking a backseat and different career path to make that work. Um, so in doing the public affairs gig, um, 
you know, I, I did some of that in Hawaii and then I ended up in the Pentagon and then it was time for my husband to take a higher level command in the Corps of Engineers at the time. Um, and I was getting promoted to Colonel and the only public affairs billet in the area at the 06 level happened to be at Fort Leavenworth, um, responsible for the Army University Press at the time. Now I think that position can get filled by pretty much any skill set. Um, it's just a leadership role. Um, but um, it just worked. Doug was working out of the federal building down in Kansas City, and then I was up at Fort Leavenworth. And at the time, I deployed. I deployed for a year to Afghanistan as well. Um, and the press is kind of a multimedia organization, so you know they take manuscripts on and publish them. Um, at the time, the Combined Arms Center Commander wanted us to start making movies. Um, highlighting army doctrine because the new soldier learned through media versus reading. Um, so oh, we started, <laughs> we started making films when I was there, which was insanity. Um, so Kate turned filmmaker. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. He's like, go make a movie and highlight army doctrine. And we're all looking at each other like, what? Um, but it worked and they're doing it really, really well now. Um, and then, you know, one of the things I think Doug and I are proud about is, you know, we knew as we got higher up in the army and Stacy will attest to it, how challenging it is to have some work-life balance. And we decided that we would exit the army on our own terms when we feel good about it. So we could have stayed in and kept going and trying to juggle it all. Um, but um, I had one of my two children really struggled with my last deployment when I went to Afghanistan when she was little. Um, and we just knew that it was it was time to kind of put family first um, and find other things. Um, and and because you know we love Colorado and the outdoors, we decided we'd try Colorado. And if we didn't like it, we'd go somewhere else. Um, my dad, who was a Vietnam veteran, um, suffered from Agent Orange-related Parkinson's, and my parents moved out near us, and I helped take care of him um, the last couple of years. And when he passed away, I finally decided it's time to start um, re-engaging and find something professionally to do because as my kids get older and more independent, they don't need me now as much, you know? Um, so I just started doing some other things and I substitute teach in the local school district. I do a lot of volunteerism. Um, and, uh, and I started recently working for another West Point grad who runs a company called Authentically American, which is 100% American made apparel. Um, and he's small staffed, but they make a great product um, that's loved by a lot of military and veterans. And he gives back to veteran support organizations and donates um, to them. And he's all about, you know, minimizing his carbon footprint and employing American workers. Um, I like being a part of it. So I'm only doing two to 10 hours for him a week, but it's fun. It's teaching me how to maximize my minutes um, to be as impactful as I possibly can in a short amount of time, um, which is fun and unique challenge. Um, but I'm thinking about getting back into something bigger, um, as well. Um, and just starting to explore options, but I did just crash on a ski slope on January 7th and I have a bad oh. MCL, ACL and a fracture. So I go back to the surgeon in a couple of weeks and I probably have to get some knee surgery in there too. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know. Okay. It's because well, I'm turning 50 this year. <laughs> well, there you go. Listen, the MCL, ACL, I'm going to blame 
Uncle Sam for that. I mean, exactly. I went through that. I went through that four years ago. Got them both in the same time. Yeah. Oh Lord. Oh wow. yikes. Well, we'll um we'll give a shout out in the write up to authentically American. Thank you. And and uh, put up the website so people can access it if they're at our program. And so before we go, Stacy, as a as a sign off, can you do you want to talk to us about? Uh, do you are you just are you in um, Merlin? Uh, you've got your life there. Your two daughters. Are you just going to see how it goes, or I mean, it's like a question that puts you on the spot. Please feel like you don't have to answer it, but I just. Uh, or, I mean, honestly, I'm. I can be very open about this. So uh, making no six, you know, uh, the way the retirement system works, uh, I've got at least two more years. I have been selected for a senior service college, which is a degree making program. And it's a year at one of the war colleges. So, and there's a utilization tour after that. Uh, so I'll be in for a few more years. I'm looking forward to Merlin and I got senior service college together, which is amazing. So this summer we will move to somewhere because they haven't published the locations yet. So we know we've got this thing coming, but uh, uh, don't know if we'll be in DC or in Pennsylvania, uh, but we've got you know at least uh, two more moves and a couple more assignments and we'll see where, where the army takes us. Merlin is doing amazing, the sky's the limit for him. So um, for me, it's the decision of whether I want to uh, hang up my hat and follow him around, but I kind of like having my own army identity. So uh, as long as we're able to keep the family together, I plan to continue serving. That's fantastic. And now Shannon, I'm gonna put you on the spot, make you tell us about where you are, because we know you moved. I, I did. I'm actually right outside of Buffalo, New York now. Um, I just moved up here to start my journey of my new life. Um, as soon as I get established, I'm planning on getting that nonprofit going. Um, I want to want to pick up where I left off. I feel like um, my life, uh, my former life, um, just kind of put me in a stalemate for a while. But I'm ready to get back to it and help out where I can. Um, there's lots of veteran organizations here and a lot of different um, service centers. And I just want to help out and volunteer where I can be used. That sounds fantastic. And I really, you look great. I'm really happy to see you. Uh, and you. we're in the same state, different ends we of are. the same state, but we're in the same state. So that's a start. Um, I, and I want to thank you, all of you for coming and participating with me on this kind of look back, look forward Paul, uh, episode. Um, it just, it meant a lot to me. I was really looking forward to it. You're like, people I've known, like, so, you know, I've known you, you've always been with me in the film. You know, our, our collaboration was probably the most intense film collaboration that I've had and extended outwards in advocacy work and led for me to a lot of other kinds of work. And so you're like all really important in my life, but um, not that I see you every day, but just to be in touch with you now is really incredible. And uh, I couldn't do it without the Veterans Breakfast Club uh, support of this podcast and Sean, who is absolutely amazing, loves all our stories. <laughs> And 
Sean, do you have a question? <laughs> I I don't want to totally leave you out. <laughs> no, no worries. I I'm just uh I'm very honored to to listen in and be a part of this uh, in any way. And I feel like if I if I started diving into my questions, we'd be here another hour. So um, I'll let this sit for itself. It's been a, a fantastic episode today. All right. Well, thank you very much.